This is Ephesians 2, 17 through 22. Um, you can follow along. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So yeah, let those words sit in the back of your mind for the next 30 minutes or so as I talk. And I'm just going to pray real quick before I, I jump in. Dear God, thank you so much that you are here. Yeah, thank you so much that you knew that we'd all be gathered here in this place <laughs> in 2021 in the midst of a crazy world. I just pray that you'd uh, be with me, speak through me today, get rid of any nerves. <laughs> yeah, and force them all to laugh at my jokes. Amen. In Jesus' name, we pray, Amen. <laughs> okay, so in order to unpack this first a little bit, I'm going to let you into my story. I'm going to talk to you about a lot of things about me that might seem irrelevant at first, but will provide helpful context, so just ride with me for a little bit. So currently, I am a third-year law student studying indigent defense, and that means I'll eventually be working with and for people who are accused of crimes but can't afford a lawyer, so the state will hire me, and I will um, work for them. And my clients will probably be like black and brown folks, just given the stats. Um, so if you know me, <laughs> you know that I'm not the kind of person who grew up wanting to become a lawyer at all. Um, I'm an Enneagram 9. Do we have any other 9s in the house, or is it just maybe in the chat? <laughs> if, you're, if you're a 9, put it in the chat. <laughs> so if any of y'all know what that means, it means a lot of things, including that I am amazing. According to, um, according to the Enneagraminstitute.com, um, the nines are the crown of the Enneagram. They have the strength of eights, the sense of fun and adventure of sevens, the dutifulness of sixes, the intellectualism of fives, the creativity of, okay, I'll stop, but like, you can tell your friends I am single. Um, but more to the point, being a nine also means that I am a peacemaker, that I desire peace and calm at all costs to a fault, um, that I, I don't like conflict. Like, I will sit and prep for a long time before I say anything controversial, and then I might still not say it. <laughs> so God was pretty hilarious when he put me in a profession where I'm going to have to be paid to fight for people, wow. <laughs> and when he put me here to talk to you about what I'm going to talk to you about today, so... I am a storyteller, so I'm going to stick to what I know and tell you a story about who I was when I was in college. Um, my most liked Facebook picture during my freshman year uh, was a picture of me standing outside of our student center holding up a whiteboard. I don't know if you guys can see it, but like, that's me. <laughs> On the whiteboard, I'd written the phrase, you're pretty for a dark girl. This was early 2014. Trayvon Martin had just been killed a couple years before. Eric Garner would die that summer. And Michael Brown in the fall. On campuses all over the country, the phrase microaggression was starting to rise to the surface as students began to kind of say what had been unsayable before that and to bring their um, experiences to the light. So as a storyteller, I found myself kind of in the middle of that work, um, helping to facilitate conversations and sharing my own reflections in the form of stories and poems and just, you know, rambling. Um, I'm actually going to share a quick example of a poem that I wrote during that time. 
Um, when I was looking for, through my writings to uh, share with you guys today, I was initially planning to share one of the poems I've shared before in other contexts or published, but I actually found poems I had written that I had never shared with anyone and forgot that I ever, <laughs> that I ever wrote. Um, so this is like a little bit more just like vulnerable and raggedy and like in the moment. Um, it's a list poem, so I will list various things. Um, and it's after the shootings. And the thing is, I don't remember which shootings they were, but like, you know, you can fill in the, the blanks. So after the shootings. One, I've heard it said that humanity is forever making poems in the lap of death. Two, if we had a moment of silence for every untimely death that's happened over the past two weeks, the whole world would be as numb and as still as my chest. Three, there are no words for this. For how to begin thinking about rebuilding and what that even means. Five, sorrow feels trite here. I do not know how to own this space, how to write something that can wake us all up. Six, a person on Twitter said that there is an ever-expanding rot at the core of this country. I am afraid that as we grill hamburgers, as we swim, as we play on our phones, the rot will expand to consume us all. Or maybe the problem is in America. Maybe it's the needy little beast of a thing inside of all of our chest, the wildly beating scared thing, the thing that is constantly wanting to belong, to be loved, to stand up and defend something. Seven, maybe the only cure is to burn this whole thing down, to take the cities and the people and offer them as a sort of sacrifice, some sort of example on this funeral pyre of remembrance. Let us remember. Eight, I don't know, I don't know. I don't know, nine. I've heard that the more you repeat something, the less it means. And you've been shouting Black Lives Matter for too long and too loudly, and I'm afraid that it'll only be a whisper. And here we are, and here we are, and here we are. It is nighttime again, and it, has been, and it has been for years. And here we are, our eyes adjusting to this present darkness. Ten. What scares me is getting used to it. So yeah, that was like almost 10 years ago, and it's kind of wild. <laughs> it's kind of wild how relevant it still feels right now. Um, and now I'm going to show you a little video of me, if you guys can see it. Is it at all visible? Either way, all that matters is the audio. starting over again you can stop it so <laughs> this was a few days after the election of Donald Trump I'd spent a couple of days in my room uncharacteristically anxious as I scrolled through all these like news stories about just like students who had been harassed by uh, so-called Trump supporters in colleges across campus but on the day this video was filmed, I got myself out of bed <laughs> to join a little peaceful protest of students and professors and community members. My plan was just to kind of like, you know, go along for the ride and go back to my room. Um, but I happened to know some of the organizers and that day, they just, that day they decided to just kind of toss me into the middle of a crowd of like hundreds of people who were blocking the central road in Nashville. Um, I was not used to doing that. I didn't really know that many chants. So I was just like making them up <laughs> a lot <laughs> as I went. It was the little squeaky voice that was like, ah, that was me. <laughs> um, I think I ended with like, we will love one another. And then I just like walked off. Um, but I'm just showing you that. I'm um, just show you who I was in about 2016, 2017. 
a few months later, um, it was my senior year, I got into law school, and I was ready to go and start doing work that would directly impact people. Um, I could use my storytelling skills in the highest stakes storytelling stage there is, the courtroom. At least that was what I put in my admissions letter. Um, <laughs> but God had other plans. Um, long story short, it became clear that God was asking me to defer my acceptance to law school and attend a discipleship, a discipleship school in a church in a small town in Tennessee. So if you don't know what a discipleship school even is, imagine a year of seminary except much less focus on scholarly stuff and much more focus on things like inner healing, understanding the Father's love, um, prophecy, physical healing, honoring one another, honoring ourselves, basically a holistic crash course in like trying to live, learn how to live how Jesus did, which is like cool, right? Sounds great. And so, and while I was at the school, I could kind of take a break from my academics and jump off the achievement treadmill and just kind of do some blogging and work at the best brunch spot in Nashville. Shout out to the Garden Brunch. Rest in peace. Um, So, no problem. Good idea, God. Um, But there was a catch. (laughs) The church was about 90% white, maybe more, and a very particular kind of white, like probably Republican white, um, probably Trump train white. Um... But God told me he had something for me there, so I agreed to go. But I'm not stupid, so I had some caveats. I just had two rules, two rules. Rule number one, no new friends. Um, I already had friends in town from college, and also these people at the school, for the most part, weren't really the kind of people that I would, like, gravitate towards. Um, And I'm sure they say the same same for me. Like, um, my small group leader was a white woman from a small town in the south who's younger than me, who had married her high school sweetheart, sweetheart liked to go hunting and fishing. Another lady in our, in our small group was about 60 years old, had, like, long hair, white hair, like, down to her back. Um, I was probably, like, an insufferable, like, somewhat hippie, like, poet girl who, like, had opinions. So, like, yeah, no new friends. No need. Rule, rule number two, stay woke. I kept a rough tally in my head of just problematic things I noticed throughout the day, whether it was, like, racism, sexism, ableism, whatever, um, that I witnessed. I didn't tell anyone that I was doing it, and I was still super nice. Um, But I was just kind of keeping a tally in my head of who was, like, crazy racist and who was just, like, a little whack but overall had, like, good intentions. Um, (laughs) So rule number two, stay woke. So it was all going pretty well until about week two, we were learning how to hear God's voice. Um, so I was minding my own Christian business one day when I heard God say to me, what are you doing? And I was like, hey, God, like, you know, I'm just like, you know, here at discipleship school doing what you asked me to do. Um, it's going great. You know, no new friends, staying woke. And I heard God say, um, you're protecting yourself, aren't you? And I was like, yeah, I'm just being smart. Um, and I heard God say, I'll protect you. I'll do that. And actually, if you don't let me do that, you're going to miss what you came here for. So, <laughs> so um, the good news is I, I did try to obey. Um, I asked one of my small group members out to lunch, and we ended up talking until nightfall. Every week, my hunting, fishing small group leader came through with some of the most accurate prophetic words of my life that I've ever had. Um, that 60-year-old lady with the long white hair uh, had stories and wisdom and could pray like nobody's business. And every week for a year, we laughed and cried and watched as God just completely transformed all of us. Um, I learned to hear God's voice for myself and for other people. I got to pray over a little boy and watch demons leave his body. I learned what God really means when he says that he loves me. I saw how powerful that love is. 
Um, and I can go on and on, but I, I just all I want to say is that like <laughs> I can say with confidence that that year spent in that church in a small town in Tennessee has had more of an impact on me than like most other years spent anywhere else. And I don't know if that would have happened if I'd gone in there with my initial plan, right? So cool, great story, but what does that have to do with y'all and with the church at large? I guess I think part of what I'm saying is I don't think we get to cancel the church quite yet. But yet, let me be clear on what I'm not saying. The first thing I'm not saying is that we should be simply just like nice and pleasant and cover over injustice in favor of good vibes. Um, And that's because niceness is not what you do around family, right? Niceness is what you do around like coworkers you don't really know, or the you know the first dates where you walk in and you immediately know that person is not it, but you gotta stay, so you gotta be nice. <laughs> um, listen, I'm an Enneagram Nine, and so I hate conflict, as we talked about. But when it comes to my friends and family, people who know me well, I'm pretty opinionated. <laughs> you can just ask Rena or or my mom. <laughs> um, my real thoughts are a gift I give people that I trust because I know that they will not abandon me if I disagree with them. But many relationships inside and outside of the church are simply too fragile for real thoughts. So it shouldn't surprise you when I say that while I was at the discipleship school in Tennessee, I sent a very lengthy, kind, but direct email to the church leadership after one of our visiting speakers went on a long rant about refugees and Fox News. When I tell you that when I was asked to give feedback, I gently pointed out to our teachers that almost every single person in the hundreds of PowerPoint slides that we viewed was white. And more importantly, that almost everyone in leadership was white. When I tell you that years after I moved from Tennessee, I FaceTimed my former pastors all the way from Nashville about racism in the wake of George Floyd that they called me, that I didn't hold any punches, lovingly. That one of them called me the night of the 2020 election to process and pray that even now my friends and I were engaging with one another, sharpening one another via email and FaceTime and Marco Polo and Instagram. It's a two-way street, and it's not always fun, and none of us is perfect. Um, but that's the long, slow work of building heaven on earth. So I just want to be clear. I'm not saying that we have to just be nice <laughs> all the time. Um, but what I am saying is that the church is not a them or an it. It's an us. And it's really easy to occupy a mind space where I'm like, I don't know if I mess with the capital C church like that. Like, I like y'all. Like, we we go to lunch sometimes. Y'all seem really nice. But, like, have you seen those pastors in the news just embarrassing us? Have you seen those people at the capital with the the flags? Like, um, Tish Harrison Warren writes, the church is not an entity outside of me. I do not stand on the outside looking in. I am as much a part of the church as, in the words of Paul, a hand is a part of a body. That means when I see sin in the church, I'm implicated in it. I contribute to the brokenness of the church. I have dealt wounds to others. I have been unfaithful to the bridegroom. Every church leader and church member is in no insignificant way a failure. But here, too, we see God's power. Because in this body of Christ, we find a place where we can be gloriously and devastatingly human. We find a place where we can fail and repent and grow and receive grace and be made new. Like a family, but even closer than a family, we can learn to live together, weak and human, in the goodness and transformation of God. But here's the catch. Um, We can only be devastatingly human in families where there is unconditional love. 
if I'm afraid that love will be withheld if I'm imperfect, I will not bring my whole self. And I'll say it one more time. If I'm afraid that love will be withheld if I am imperfect, I simply will not bring my whole self. A synonym for unconditional love is stubborn loyalty. Last week, Mickey quoted Pastor John Tyson, who wrote that a creative minority is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships knotted together in a living network of persons who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. So yeah, just to recap, number one, the church is not them, it's an us. And number two, when people look at the church, it should not make sense immediately why we're friends. The only explanation should be Jesus. Let me tell you what I mean. Jesus demonstrated this in the way he chose his disciples. So, for example, two of Jesus' inner circle were Simon the Zealot and Matthew the Tax Collector. If you've been in church for a while, you've probably heard these two names, Simon the Zealot, Matthew the Tax Collector. But it's easy for the historical and political significance of who these people were to get lost on us because we weren't, you know, we're not living in that time. So Matthew was a tax collector, which means that he worked for the Roman Empire that was oppressing the Jews. Rome would tax the Jews at rates of like up to like 80%. <laughs> Imagine paying your rent on 20% of your current paycheck. Um, and Rome would use Jewish tax collectors to collect the money and goods for the taxes. And in order to make their own money, tax collectors like Matthew got to take a cut over and above the already oppressive taxes. And they could get away with this because they had armed Roman guards to enforce whatever they decided to do. So tax collectors were viewed as honestly worse than the, Roman, um, the Romans because they were Jews who had become traitors to their own people. So that's Matthew, the tax collector. And then we had Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were a political movement of, uh, in first century Second Temple Judaism who sought to incite the people of Judea province to rebel against the Roman Empire and expel it from the Holy Land by force of arms by any means necessary. Many of them were low-key terrorists and assassins on behalf of the Jewish cause. Zealot extremists were known as Sikari, which is Greek for dagger men. They would go to public places with hidden daggers to strike down persons friendly to Rome. So people like Simon the Zealot were known to sneak in the middle of a crowd, sit, quietly slit the throats of people like Matthew the tax collector, and then dash away. So these are the people that Jesus chose to bring together <laughs> into his inner circle. I wonder what they talked about as they spent those three years just walking behind Jesus, eating meal after meal together, having bonfires at night, staying up late, witnessing these miracles, being transformed. I don't think they were being just nice to each other. (laughs) After a while, that gets old. I imagine they got somewhere. And just, I want you guys to imagine just the witness they're even like being together and associating was to the community around them. I bet it made people ask, who is this Jesus that can bring these people together as brothers? And not brothers in like a kumbaya, cheesy, diversity, inclusion way, but brothers who together with the 12 gave their lives to tell the story of Jesus so that 2,000 years later, we could hear and believe. And that's just two of the disciples. Don't even get me started on Paul, who before he became an apostle, was for real overseeing an attempted genocide of Christians, right? Even after he converted, the Christians in Jerusalem didn't want to associate with him because he had literally killed their friends. Um, we have Acts 9.26, uh, where it says, when he, ca- when he, meaning Paul, came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. 
Well, I wouldn't either. <laughs> Imagine the conversations they would have had to had to reconcile with this man. Just a bit before, a couple of months before, Paul had overseen the stoning to death of their good friend, Stephen. Imagine the time it must have taken to get to a place of real trust. Imagine the humility and repentance Paul would have had to embody and the humility the church in Jerusalem would have had to embody as they realized that whether they liked it or not, God had chosen to use Paul and he was their brother. So with that in mind, my third point is I think we need to build resilience and foundation in our friendships. When we're here at church, kikiing outside after service, or when we're on Zoom for CG, we're not just here to be nice, right? We're here to build family and go deep so that when the time comes, we can have honest encounters with one another that change us, bind us together, and model for the world what kingdom looks like. The world's not looking for another religion or another list of rules. The world's looking for a real family where everyone is welcome and everyone is transformed. Now, all that sounds really great, but I want to acknowledge the voice in the back of our heads. It's like, okay, Lisa, like I like what you're saying, but have you seen the church lately? So I want to give you a couple reasons why I have hope for the church. And before I even go into my two reasons, I want to like point out just like one thing, is that often when people are worried about their church, they're talking about like, they're, they're taking on a pretty ethnocentric view of what the church is. Think about like North American church specifically, because the, t- the church around the world is kind of doing fine. <laughs> like the fastest growing church in the world is in Iran. People are literally like, you know, being flogged in the streets and like being imprisoned for being Christians, and they're seeing God move. Like the church is all right, you know. But <laughs> I want to turn to like why I'm hopeful about the church in North America. So number one, um, the church is familiar with repentance, and let me explain what I mean by that. Um, those of you familiar with social justice work know that some of the difficulty is that it forces people to rethink everything they think they know about themselves, their country, their lives. If racism is real, then that changes how we see our economic structures, how we think about our childhood experiences, how we think about our assumptions and instincts about other people, how we consider beauty and attraction, how we think about the police. All that stuff has to change, and like our lives have to change after that, and that's difficult, <laughs> you know? And it, um, that's a big ask. But how many of y'all know what the word repent really means? The word repent, as it's used over and over in the Bible, is metanoia. Meta meaning beyond, and noia meaning mind. And the term accurately translated actually means rethink everything. Forget what you thought you knew. (laughs) The church majors in repentance. All of us who decided to follow Jesus have abandoned whatever we thought we knew and are working every single day to take on the mental maps of Jesus to live according to the story of scripture. The stories you're living before have been interrupted and replaced with something better. We're not new to rethinking things. So that's one thing that gives me hope about the church. And the second thing that gives me hope is what Jesus himself said about the church. He said, speaking to Peter and knowing how imperfect his disciples were, Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Racism can't prevail against it. All these other things can't prevail against it. And furthermore, Jesus is coming back for his spotless, redeemed bride, the bride he died for, his chosen partner in the restoration of all things, and that bride is the church whether we like it or not, you know, so it's going to happen. There's no spoiler alert. This is just like classic Orthodox Christianity, that this is the good news, that Jesus became human to rescue broken humanity, to make us like him, to make us whole, to bring renewal to the planet. So uh, Leslie Newbegin wrote, 
None of us can be made whole unless we are all made whole together. If we are saved at all, we are saved together. So I'm about to close, but I want you to know that this is not a message that I could have given in college. This is not a message I could have given even two years ago. I don't know if I would have been able to even hear this, <laughs> you know, because of how hurt I was. And honestly, I could have counted my close Christian friends on, like, one hand until pretty recently. What I'm saying is I have not always been about the capital C church. <laughs> um, this is a message that God has been slowly working into my heart over time through relationship with the beautiful, messy, broken people of God. So, again, we come back to the verses that we started with, and I actually want to just, like, pray them over us as a church. So, 99, he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens of God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So just let that be true of us. Amen.